In recent months, concern has been raised about the practice of allowing medical trainees to perform intimate intrusive examinations, such as of the vagina or the rectum, on patients who are under general anesthesia immediately before a surgical procedure. Discussions about what type of consent is necessary and appropriate for trainee involvement are relevant for many procedures conducted in academic medical settings. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michael Green, a member of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Massachusetts General Hospital and an associate editor at the journal. Dr. Green has written a perspective article about considerations regarding the consent process for examinations conducted by medical trainees. Dr. Green, in what ways are medical students and residents involved in patient care at a typical academic medical center? And how might that involvement differ from the image that patients may have in their minds? Typically, at academic medical centers, a major part of our responsibility, in addition to taking care of patients and advancing the field with research, is to train the next generation of healthcare providers, physicians, nurses, etc. So it's a major portion of what we do. Typically, the experience and the training is graded according to the experience and the skills of the trainees. Furthermore, there has been something of a revolution in the past few decades about recognizing the necessity of an appropriate supervision of trainees throughout their course of training. So the complexity of the procedures, etc., that trainees, whether they're medical students or interns or residents or fellows, participate in are appropriate for their experience and level of skill at the time that they're participating in the procedure. Your article focuses in part on intimate examinations that are sometimes conducted by trainees when a patient's under anesthesia. Can you talk about the controversy regarding those examinations that's been playing out over the past year? The concern about examinations under anesthesia has received a lot more attention recently, but it's not a new concern. As I say, I think recently it's received more attention, but the thoughts about this are not new. As a matter of fact, one of the references that I use, we published about five years ago in the journal. So it's not totally new. It's just maybe in the era of the Me Too movement and other consciousness-raising events, it's received more attention. So in a related perspective article, Largent discusses the consent process for training involvement in pediatric care. Why is that also an area of particular concern? What kinds of challenges are involved there? Well, with respect to pediatric patients, obviously, they're not capable of giving consent themselves. They must have a parent or guardian provide consent among our pediatric colleagues is an effort to make sure that although children cannot provide a formal legal consent, that they assent to the procedure that they're about to undergo, even if it's not with a legally binding document. You write in your article that the central dilemma in issues of training involvement is that all patients want their clinicians to be skilled and experienced, but all trainees need practice before they become skilled and experienced. So what kinds of conversations can facilitate mutual understanding between patients and clinicians about the role of trainees and about patients' rights? Well, I think the most important thing is to say up front that every patient has the option of declining care by a trainee. Now, we hope they don't, 
And if every patient was to refuse to see any trainee in any capacity, we would destroy our system of medical education. So that's an important societal benefit that we all must keep in mind. But one of the things that I talk about in the perspective is the importance of making sure that the patient in the doctor-patient relationship doesn't feel trapped and forced to accept the presence or the participation of a trainee in their care. The patient needs to be given permission very explicitly to say no. The relationship between doctor and patient is inevitably an uneven one. We understand that the patients perceive us as authority figures and are reticent to decline or refuse suggestions that we may make, and we need to do our best when discussing these issues with the patient to make them feel more like they're on a level playing field with the physician. So whose responsibility should it be to make sure that patients have provided the appropriate consent for a given procedure? And how should trainees manage situations in which their roles or the patient's preferences are not clear? It is the attending physician's responsibility to obtain all of the necessary and appropriate consent from the patient. And one of the issues that has been discussed considerably in recent decades is that consent is not a written piece of paper. It's not a form. Consent is a process. And the process of consenting a patient includes making sure that the patient understands what the nature of the procedure is or procedure or treatment, what the risks of it are, what the intended benefits are, and that there is a reasonable expectation that the benefits will exceed the risks that the patient is accepting in agreeing to the treatment or procedure. So there should be no ambiguity about the responsibility for the consent process. That belongs to the attending physician. One of the issues that we need to acknowledge is that in a modern, large academic medical center, the system is complicated. When we go to the operating room to perform a surgical procedure, we don't necessarily know if any trainees are going to be around, and if there are, who they're going to be, what year of training they might be in, what their level of experience and skill may be. It's just a function of the complexity of modern medical centers and scheduling issues in operating rooms, et cetera. So it's frequently not possible for the attending physician to know exactly the name and the place currently that the trainee is in in his or her training when the informed consent process is undertaken by the attending physician. So as a practical matter, we need to ask the patient for permission for trainees, if they're present, to participate in their procedures or treatments without necessarily knowing exactly who that individual person is going to be at the time. Finally, you spoke earlier about the imbalance of power between doctors and patients. And in your article, you underline the fact that that imbalance has been magnified for publicly insured patients and people of color. So how can clinicians and healthcare systems foster trust among these populations and repair some of the damage that unethical medical practices and lack of appropriate consent in the past have produced? 
Yeah, that's a very important question, and the answer is not a simple one. To some extent, it can be done by the physician or the healthcare provider, whether it's a nurse midwife or whoever it is, making sure that they've had an honest discussion with the patient to make the patient feel empowered to make decisions about their care and not to feel that they're backed into a corner and need to accept whatever it is the doctor proposes without adequate explanation. Beyond that, the other thing that's helpful is for patients to see people like them in the healthcare setting, whether it's their doctor specifically or their nurse or others in the healthcare delivery team that look like them. That's helpful. But as a practical matter, that may not always be possible. And the attending physician or healthcare provider must be cognizant that this is a potential issue every time he or she walks into an examining room or a consultation room. Thank you, Dr. Green.